Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's episode has two courses. First, my interview with the leading expert on climate change and development, who will talk about the Global Climate Change Conference in Paris this November and December. And second, my talk with an immigration policy expert on an important new report on immigrants and their integration into American society. There's a very big United Nations-sponsored climate change conference being held in Paris this November and December. To help us understand what it's all about, I'm joined in the studio by Timmons Roberts, a non-resident senior fellow in our Global Economy and Development Program here at Brookings, who is also the Idelson Professor of Environmental Studies and Sociology at Brown University. Welcome to the show, Timmons. Thanks, Fred. It's good to be here. We're here to talk about the upcoming Global Climate Talks in Paris, but first, let me ask you, what climate change issues mean to you personally, both as a scholar and as a citizen? sometimes wonder this myself. This issue has been intriguing to me for 25 years. I started working on it in 1992. There was the big Earth Summit in Rio de Janeiro, and then there was some articles in my disciplinary newsletter about how we needed more social science research on climate change. And that really struck a chord with me that I felt like we indeed needed to understand the politics, the sociology, the economics of climate change in a different way. And so I set out um, starting to understand, trying to understand which countries were better at dealing with climate change and which ones were not doing as well and which ones were polluting a lot and getting no social benefit. But so that's sort of as a scholar, I think, and I, and I want to say on the end of that to say that climate change is so complex, it touches all areas of life and it just gets more and more interesting. There's always more to understand and there's huge areas that have been very little studied and, and discussed. So that's as a scholar. As a citizen and a person, um, I, I think climate change is deeply affecting to me, and I have to confess it's sometimes hard to cope with. Um, the, the science is terrifying uh, to really look it in the face, to understand what is likely to happen. And uh, I do lose, lose sleep about this issue, and I wish I did not. Um, but I do have some coping strategies that I think have helped me to keep working on it intensely and with optimism for these 25 years. So one of my coping strategies is to try to do something about it and to um, engage my students at Brown University uh, in the effort of trying to make a difference. So I bring students to the climate negotiations every year. I'll be bringing about 15 students to Paris. We have about uh, eight going each week. Um, most of which will have credentials to go inside the negotiating halls. We'll be doing reporting, um, research, uh, blogging, tweeting uh, from my lab. It's called the Climate and Development Lab. And, and then all we have online at Brown University. It's all online. So it's climatedevlab.org. And uh, we also have a Twitter feed that we try to keep pretty active. And What's I have a Twitter personal feed? Twitter feed. Yeah. Let's let's hear those too. Those are the, well, the, clim- the, the, uh, the lab's Twitter feed is climatedevlab. And then mine is uh, Timmons Roberts, my Twitter handle. So there's a lot going on um, to keep track of. And then I have students, we try to get them all embedded with um, delegations of, for example, we've worked with the least developed countries, the poorest 48 countries in the world, and with uh, think tanks, NGOs, and news organizations. But I just want to say one last thing. I'm also a father. I have a 12-year-old and a 20-year-old. And uh, 
my 20-year-old boy, when he was younger, he just didn't want to hear about climate change because it was too upsetting to him and he'd heard too much. And I realized that this is a very delicate issue uh, to talk about uh, with children and and really it's an emotional issue. And with my 12-year-old, she's she gets it. And she knows why it's important. And uh, when she asks me if, if we're going to solve climate change, I say, yes, we are going to solve climate change because we have to. And I, I'm, I'm convinced now that humanity is starting to make the turn now to start to address climate change in a serious way. So I feel like 2015 is a an amazing year, a much better year than we expected, and really a year that's that's quite hopeful. Well, uh, also as a father, I, I share your concern and your your terror about the climate change issues. So thanks for sharing that. the The event is called or has the acronym COP21, COP21. Can you explain? Uh, why the funny acronym? Right. So there was the the big treaty that we're still um, acting under is called the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, or the UNFCCC. And it has meetings of that, the meetings of all the countries who are parties to it. Uh, so parties are nations that have ratified a treaty. So it has conferences of the parties, or COPs, every year, starting in 1995 in Berlin. So this is now the 21st meeting. A student said recently uh, at one of these COPs, um, I think it was COP20, she said, you have been negotiating my entire life, which, you know, people joke about, you know, we're going to be a COP, you know, 121, you know, when we finally solve this problem. But I think, so it's very easy to be discouraged about how long this is taking, but it's a process and there's bad times and good times. I think we're in a good time. And I don't want to get back to that very strongly here in a minute. But first, I also want to ask sort of structurally, who attends COP21? Say, who is the representative of the United States? Is it the president, the secretary of state? Who goes to this? Right. So there's um, normally uh, it starts with the lower level negotiators uh, who are the climate change specialists. In the case of the United States, the head of the delegation is Todd Stern from the State Department. And then he there's a team that goes with him from State Department, from some other agencies like uh, USAID, the Agency for International Development, from the NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and from NASA, and so on. There's now a U.S. center that that they set up to describe the climate science that's going on in the U.S. and um, and to connect with other countries. So there's a there's a fairly big delegation from the U.S. and then there are and then. The minister come. I'm sorry, it would be a minister in other countries, but a, our uh, Secretary of State, John Kerry, will show up. Uh, and then the President, Obama, will almost certainly show up as well. This year, they're doing it backwards from the usual, and that instead of the, the having the heads of state come at the end, the heads of state will come on the first day. They'll make speeches about how this is an important issue and and hopefully deal with some of the political, sort of the big top-level issues and then hand it off to the negotiators to get the hard work done okay. and, and get out of the way. And we that's at the very end of November. And right. So November 30th will be that day. And then as we go into December 1st through the 11th or 12th is when the negotiations will run. Okay. Well, we've seen, uh, at least heard about in the, in the public press especially, other global climate conferences such as uh, um, Kyoto in 97, Copenhagen in 2009, uh, this is now COP21, the 21st meeting of the UNFCCC. It's in Paris. What makes this one different? Right. So in Kyoto, a system was set up uh, in the Kyoto Protocol where about 35 countries agreed to take on 
a pledge or they pledged an amount or they had binding commitments on how much emissions they would reduce, how much they would cut their carbon pollution emissions. And the, on average, there was 5%. And so it was only 35 countries and it was only 5% emissions. It was not adequate and it was never seen as the be all and end all. It was seen as the beginning of a longer process. But it was sort of a top-down system. In Copenhagen, the Cop that was set up in 2009 as the big moment of truth to come up with a successor treaty to the Kyoto Protocol. And it failed. It was about 10 days into a 12-day negotiation. And they still had a text, a um, you know negotiating treaty that was filled with brackets or these um, texts that's been marked as being not agreed upon. So it, it, and right now we have a text that's filled with brackets. So I'm a little nervous about that happening again. And that's when uh, President Obama burst into the room with the heads of state of Brazil, South Africa, India, and China, the four big emerging countries that sort of shared the U.S.'s desire to be done with the Kyoto Protocol and start in a new direction. And they came up with a new what was called pledge and review system where countries got to pledge what they wanted to do. And then there would be an international review of that. So that was 2009. And... Um, the difference this time is that we're now – there's now been a process to get back to sort of formalizing that system and I can talk a lot more about, you know, how that's happening this year. But the countries are coming in with sort of a pledging process. Um, it's all nationally determined. That is, countries are saying what they want to do. There's nothing top down about it. It's all bottom up. So they're, they're putting in these things called INDCs or – Another acronym, um, Intended Nationally Determined Contributions, INDCs, Intended Nationally Determined Contributions. And there, um, the language sounds very squishy, uh, sort of UN speak, and it kind of is. The countries are protecting their sovereignty. But it's quite surprising that this approach, of which I have to say I was very skeptical, uh, is seems to be de delivering some benefits. For example... At the beginning of this year, the um, estimates were that we were headed for about 3.6 degrees Celsius of warming by the end of the century, or yeah, about there, or by 2050. Whereas now, it's with these pledges, um, the estimate is that we're down to 2.7 degrees. So it went from 3.6 to 2.7 degrees. So that's almost one degree less of warming that's expected because countries have come in with pledges, like what? The U.S. said we would reduce our emissions by 26 to 28% by 2025. And Obama pledged that um, based entirely on existing legislation. It doesn't require Congress to do anything. China said it would peak its emissions by 2030. Um, this was in a joint announcement that they were, that both countries said that back in November or last year in 2014. And there's been a series of these kind of pledges um, throughout the year. And if you add them all up, they add up to 2.7 degrees of warming. And again, that's Celsius. So in Fahrenheit, if you do the math, that's about uh, about 5 degrees uh, Fahrenheit of warming um, still. And of course, is that enough? Uh, it is not enough, right? So the, the scientists are telling us it's about 2 degrees is the highest limit uh, to stay safe. 2 Celsius. 2 degrees Celsius. So the estimates are that we're still at 2.7. And in fact, right now, we're just under one degree Celsius of warming, uh, and we're already seeing these impacts of 
wildfires, droughts, heat waves, um, flooding, sea level rise, melting Greenland ice sheets and uh, and Antarctica being potentially inst- destabilized. And anyway, there's great risk that we're running right now. At one degree, what is it going to be like at two? Really, the sciences are only their best guesses and the best guesses that we're going too far. So a lot of countries, especially the vulnerable countries, islands, small islands, drought-prone areas of Africa and so on, are saying we need to stay under 1.5 degrees, which really means very rapid transformation of our economy. Given all of this data and all of this observed and felt phenomena, how is it possible that, say, uh, the U.S. senator from Oklahoma, for example, walks into the Senate floor with a snowball in his hand and says, see, there's no global warming, and the same senator says he's going to go to Paris and be a one-man truth squad and say that the Obama administration is lying. Can you help listeners uh, kind of come to grips with why that could be? Unfortunately, the issue of climate change has become a political and polarized one in the U.S., and it didn't start out that way. In 1997, Democrats and Republicans had very similar opinions about climate change, that it existed, that it was a scientifically proven issue and that we should do something about it. And then the, the, the two parties started to diverge in their opinions and in their, you know, sort of what the elite is saying here in Washington. So unfortunately, the Republican Party has adopted a position that, that climate change is, that it's not real. And then if it is real, then it's natural and it's always been happening. So it's cyclical. And then there's other positions that it's real, it's happening, but it's not human made. And then once once there's sort of an admission that all that is that it is human made and that it's that it's problematic and it's happening, then they say it's too expensive to take to to take the steps that are necessary and that it would ruin the economy and and put people out of work and so on, and affect the American way, to the extent that it's not worth acting on. So I think um, the positions are shifting in the Republican Party. Um, they are, I think, seeing that they're unable to connect with their younger generation who believe very strongly in climate change, that the uh, public is really has become convinced that climate change is real. And that's, I think, one of the things that's different this year in 2015 uh, compared to 2009 in Copenhagen. And that's one of what I call my five tailwinds uh, of why things are better this time around for this kind of action is that... um, People are perceiving this uh, climate change in the United States, for example, and, and a lot of other countries. Um, again, people are seeing it, the stuff happening that they've never seen before. Just in Rhode Island, we have two and a half more weeks of summer of hot weather over 80 degrees than we had when I was a kid. So I think the, 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 the country is shifting. People are shifting. So I think Senator Imhoff, who you're describing uh, from Oklahoma, um, is becoming increasingly isolated in his party and uh, in the national scene. Let's uh, let's leave politics again and, and take the global view. And you've written a lot about the north-south divide, and not necessarily just north and south, but there are emerging economies and developed economies. And the charge uh, often heard from the emerging economies, China, India, Brazil, and others, is that, look, United States, look, Canada, look, Germany, you guys have had this industrial development, you have high standards of living, and you emit most of the emissions on the globe. So we can't be expected to cut our emissions as much as you should cut your emissions. How, how does this issue get dealt with? So that's been a sticking point for these low these 25 years of climate negotiations. You're right on the, I think, a critical issue. And that's the sense of equity, of fairness, 
what would be fair shares as countries around the world decide to take on this issue? And, um, you know, we do have a sort of kindergarten ethics principle of if you, cl- if you created a mess, you get to clean it up, right? Or you need to clean it up. And we have even in U.S. law in Superfund that the polluter pays principle that if you created a mess, even if you didn't know it was hurting other people, it's your responsibility to clean it up. So that's basically the nature of the grievance from the poorer countries saying historically countries like the U.S. and Europe have put much more into the atmosphere than they have. Um, Carbon dioxide put in the atmosphere now will be there 100 years from now. All the car, you know, the problem is the atmosphere has almost only so much space, almost only so much carbon it can hold before we have these impacts, and uh, we've used much of it up ourselves. So, and the developing countries come along later, and they need still, for example, in India, they still have 300 million people without electricity, and how can we tell them not to even have you know one light bulb uh, when we have you know large SUVs and huge homes? And they're sitting on huge piles of uh, soft coal, some of the worst, most highly carbon-polluting fossil fuel on Earth. So, you know, I think we have a problem where we have to overcome that feeling like we're denying them of the basic needs and the right to a decent living and a future that's that's better than the one that they've experienced. So it's our obligation to help them with technology to make that sort of leapfrog over the dirty fossil fuel plants, to not build that cold fired power plant, but rather to adopt solar, wind, other renewables. We have to help with, you know, storage of that electricity or um, providing systems and the, the grid, helping them build a grid that works better. Um, so it's technology and finance and um, in, in other ways to help them uh, over that, um, to try to break that, I think, north-south uh, impasse, really, that held us up for so long. And we saw this coming up again even just last month in Bonn, Germany, and some negotiations where developing countries said, well, wait a minute, you didn't really deal with equity. You can't, uh, you can't forget that this is really a problem of, of fairness still. Just a quick program announcement for our listeners. Upcoming episodes of the Brookings Cafeteria will also feature insights from more of our scholars on the Paris Climate Conference, both during and after the event. And now back with Timmons Roberts. So when the, when the countries come into the conference in Paris with their INDCs, their intended nationally determined contributions, uh, are, is the conference going to result in some uh, new larger agreement to do something? And if so, what is that something? Right. So the conference, in some ways, first of all, to say Paris and this year has been a success already. So we're not just waiting for what comes out of Paris, but we hope that out of Paris will come a document that's agreed by the nations of the world, almost all of them, hopefully all of them. And there are still some issues that need to be resolved in the big you know, sort of top-line things that they'll be negotiating over. One is a long-term goal. Is the long-term goal of society to decarbonize, to reach zero carbon? There's other different wording, but it's basically that idea. And when should we do that? Is it by the end of the century? Is it by 2050? Would be very ambitious somewhere in between those dates. And then who, you know, again, who will be responsible for making the biggest cuts when. So there's that sort of the long-term goal issue, and there'll be a lot of, you'll hear a lot about that. Another is uh, whether 
there should be five-year cycles in these pledges. So, you know, this year countries are com have come in with their pledges, over 130 countries, or actually 130 pledges, which with the European Union is over 150 countries. And uh, so should there be a cycle of this pledging and reviewing? Um, and it's there's one mechanism that's being described as the ratchet mechanism that where countries would have to increase their ambition every five years. They would make a pledge that they feel they're able to now, and then in 2020, we'll do this all over again, and countries will have to be more ambitious, and we'll see if those add up to more progress. What I like about that, just to say, is um, countries, we don't really know what technology will be possible, you know, will make possible in, the, in five years. Um, my observation is the price of wind and solar is dropping so quickly uh, that they will be as cheap or cheaper than fossil fuels in five years, and it'll be much easier for more ambition. So earlier when I said we're still at 2.7 degrees, if we add up all these pledges, um, it's really the first round of many rounds. This will keep going every five years. So that was point number two, that they're going to be negotiating the pledge and review cycles and the ratchet mechanism. The third big thing is um, finance. So there was a pledge made or a promise made back in Copenhagen in 2009 that the wealthy countries would deliver or scale up to $100 billion a year in climate finance. There's lots of details to that. It, was, it could be public and private. It could be grants or loans. But it was supposed to be new and additional funding, money that was not taken away from development priorities like health and education and so on that we we're already providing to developing countries. And just to give you a, an idea of the scale of that $100 billion pledge, right now all of foreign assistance by the public sectors in the wealthy countries of all the, you know, across the world give about $135 billion. So in some ways this is kind of a doubling of foreign aid if it were to be seen as public grants and aid. But a lot of this is expected to be private investment. So then we have to say, how is that, you know, how is that mobilized by the wealthy countries and so on? There's a lot of tricky issues around the finance pledge and how we'll know if it's met. And the question is, is this $100 billion just a floor? Is this a ceiling? Will it level off uh, at 2020, you know, at $100 billion? That's not going to be okay with developing countries. The estimates of the need are several times that. And when, if we talk about, you know, helping India avoid building those coal plants, we have to help at least pay that increment, the extra cost of switching over to solar power and so on. Um, and so that could be hundreds of billions, uh, at least of private finance and probably some public funding to sort of seed that. So you get the idea. So there's a, a lot of issues around finance. And then finally, there's something called loss and damage, which is a demand of the most vulnerable countries in the world that they say there are things that they just can't adapt to that as the sea level rises, the storms get worse, the flooding gets worse, um, the heat just gets to be uh, too much to grow crops anymore. Some areas of the world might become uninhabitable. We hear about the Maldives islands. Yes, the Maldives underwater. are going underwater. Some uh, I just saw an estimate the other day that the Middle East, some countries, uh, and the Persian Gulf may become uninhabitable, just too hot. So um, we can help people adapt with new technologies, with funding to, you know, make changes in their agriculture systems or their water systems or you get the idea. But there are some things that just can't be adapted to. So above and beyond adaptation is loss and damage. And it's a 
again, a demand of developing countries. It's um, one they'll be pushing for some language on. Um, currently, the language that's in the negotiating texts is pretty vague, and it's kind of says that there'll be a four-year plan to work out the details of this, but that it'll it'll be um, it'll be negotiated later, essentially. But they want something in the text about loss and damage. So those are the four issues um, that I see as being the top line things that'll get negotiated in Paris. Okay, so then the conference ends in mid-December. Uh, the U.S. negotiators come home. What do they come home with? Uh, what do they do with it? Is anything that they agree to binding on U.S. policy? And the same question for some of the other countries around the world as well. Right. Um, I think the, there, that's another question that's going to be debated is how binding should this treaty be? And President Obama and his team will go in with the very clear message that they cannot sign something that's binding in the sense of, the, say, the Kyoto Protocol because you can't get it through the Senate, right? Any treaty has to be – there's two stages, right? Signing and ratifying. So yes, the, the executive can sign it, but to get it ratified, it has to get two-thirds votes in the Senate, which is very hard. And it's really one of the reasons why the U.S. is signatory on many fewer treaties than most countries, most especially developed countries. And um, so it won't be necessarily binding, but I, um, the pledges that are that he has made internationally, this 26 to 28 percent emissions reductions for the U.S., can largely be met by existing rules and regulations by I- implementing the Clean Air Act that was passed years ago. So he'll come back with uh, basically an agreement by the world's countries to 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 work together to try to address this issue. Um, I think there will be pressure on the United States to do much more. If you look at some of the reviews of our pledges, our INDCs, Europe and the U.S. are the ones that are sort of the most out of line with how much we cause the problem, the good old polluter principle, and um, that our fair share really would be much higher if we consider the damage we've done. So there will be pressure on us, you know, internationally to do more. And I think, um, you know, Paris could deliver a sense of cooperation globally that, uh, you know, even some surprising countries have come in with these fairly constructive INDCs this year um, and very pragmatic that people are going to do what they can do. Even countries that just a couple years ago were saying that only the wealthy countries should have any obligations or should be making emissions reductions. Now many more countries are saying that. And and what's been interesting this year is that those other countries have also had to engage in a process of planning, national planning to figure out how they're going to, you know, what kind of target can we put out there and how might we meet it when we come home. But there will be a lot of work to be done to implement whatever happens in Paris. Well, this is a UN-sponsored uh, process and conference. Uh, but is this the best organization to organize and lead a global effort on climate change? And what about governments, individuals, NGOs, businesses, grassroots activists? Right. So all every action at every level is important. That sounds very cheesy, but um, it's. I think it's the case. Um, when a church puts solar panels on its roof and, and puts in thermostats so it can turn down the heat instead of heating a building all week, that's a huge help. And uh, their pledges can be summed up into, you know, more momentum for, act, you know, actions 
at the national and international level. Isn't there a group called like Interfaith Power? It's like a yeah, Interfaith Power and Light. Yes, we worked with them in Rhode Island. They're a national organization of churches, synagogues, um, temples, and so on. And I think a hugely important movement uh, to bring churches um, into this climate change effort, and they've made a big difference. Universities are making pledges um, uh, to sort of redouble their efforts on reducing emissions. Um, cities are, some are, you know, putting in new pieces of legislation. States are considering things like carbon pricing and so on. There's efforts at all these different levels. However, none of these can make a global uh, agreement to all work together on this issue in the same way as nations can. So David Siplett and I wrote a blog about a week or two ago here on Brookings uh, Planet Policy blog, and we um, argue that we still need the United Nations um, to deliver on climate change. And this is also um, a point we take up in our book uh, called Power in a Warming World, which just came out uh, in September. And we argue that the UN really is the only, you know, body of representatives uh, of territories on earth that can agree um, to address this problem. It's a global problem. We need a global solution. You, you talked recently in another blog on the Brookings website on Planet Policy about a, quote, razor's edge that President Obama has walked, especially in reference to remarks that he made in Alaska when he was there recently, and also that we humans are walking along uh, this razor's edge. What is the razor's edge. Mm -hmm. The razor's edge is cheap energy and jobs uh, on the one hand and a future for ourselves and our children on the other. I think if you watch his speeches from Alaska, uh, Obama was very aware of the impacts that are coming very quickly and he's, I think he gets, he gets the severity and the great risk that, that we face with climate change because the Arctic is seeing the impacts sooner. It's warming faster. And yet Alaska, you know, has this huge oil resource and it's, you know, a huge proportion of the state revenue comes from oil. You know, it's oil and fish. Uh, I, don't, uh, I don't know what percentage, but it's quite high. And every, you know, resident of the state of Alaska receives a check uh, every year just for being there because of all the oil, uh, the oil trust fund. So, and I think jobs uh, really is the third rail of politics. Um, and so he's got to be clear on how we can address this problem without endangering American competitiveness in manufacturing. You know, will energy prices rise to the point that companies will move overseas? Right now we have very cheap natural gas, um, the fracking revolution and uh, some other technologies, horizontal drilling and so on have made, uh, fossil fuels quite cheap in the U.S., um, some of the cheapest in the world. So some manufacturing has moved back because of cheap energy. And this is, uh, I don't know, the natural gas boom has helped the U.S. in some ways reduce our emissions to a certain point. So we're now sort of, we've crossed the bridge and now there's sort of a, a tailwind for the administration being able to say, well, we can do much more um, on emissions reductions because look, we've actually reduced more than almost anybody else in the world. But uh, it's also then difficult if we keep building natural gas-based and, and petroleum-based infrastructure, then in 5, 10, 15 years, it's going to be hard. We're going to have stranded assets. We will have invested a lot of money in, in infrastructure 
that cannot be used um, if we, in fact, realize that uh, we have to make just a step change to a whole new energy system that's renewable, zero carbon, or net zero carbon. So we might emit some, but we can absorb some carbon and so on. Now, one other edge that has been named in climate change discussions is a cliff's edge. What is the cliff's edge? Well, I think you're talking about tipping points. So, um, you know, one could say we're speeding towards a cliff. We don't know where that cliff is. We're, we're speeding towards a cliff with a blindfold on, uh, or we, with blindfolds on. Um, and the question is, do you want to push down the accelerator or start applying the brake? In other words, do we you know, start doing more extreme extraction of, of fossil fuels deeper offshore uh, with more extreme technology of fracking and so on? Or do we need to start um, slowing down and making maybe a more prudent, in my opinion, decision to start learning where the, uh, you know, where the brake is on this vehicle and whether there's benefits from, you know, switching to renewable energy? So the tipping point is really the point at which um, Earth systems start to behave in sort of self-reinforcing uh, cycles. So, for example, when the permafrost melts, it releases methane. Methane is about 30 times more potent of a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide. So just that warming, you know, is creating a whole new set of impacts. When the polar ice cap melts, the sunlight is not reflected back out to space. It's absorbed into the water. That water warms. Um, there's many of these kind of feedback loops, like when, uh, when it becomes hotter, there's higher levels of drought, um, and the, for example, the Amazon starts to dry out, and there's fires in the Amazon, and then that releases huge amounts of carbon that were stored in that forest, and then even in the root systems and so on as forests dry out. So those are called tipping points. Uh, examples of those are fairly terrifying to consider, but uh, we don't know where they are, you know, sort of at what level of warming we're going to face them. In, a, in an upcoming piece for, uh, for Brookings, to be published next week, I believe, uh, you call it the Paris moment. Are you hopeful that COP21 will put the world on a better path with regard to addressing climate change? I do. I, th I think the Paris moment is looking very promising. It, we have to be careful because expectations can be too high, and that's what was one of the problems in Copenhagen. But as I said, I think there's sort of tailwinds this year that make this year different. First, I'll be quick. I see five of them. People are perceiving climate change. I mentioned that in a different way than they did just five or six years ago. Second, the economy is better in many countries in the world, in most countries. So remember in 2009 was when the, the economy was in free fall, and uh, we didn't really know how to stop it. So that's a very tough time to negotiate a treaty on an issue like climate change. Third, um, renewable energy has gotten much cheaper. So the wind itself is a tailwind. Um, and as I mentioned before, um, wind and solar are now approaching the same cost to install to the grid as coal and, and natural gas. Thirdly, I'm sorry, for number four is uh, the Pope Francis, that he was a, just a big surprise to almost everybody um, that here was a, you know, the leader of the Catholic Church went around um, the world and has talked a lot about climate change, including a trip to Latin America recently. And he put out his um, encyclical, the Laudato Si, this summer and really tied 
climate change to a moral issue, to the issue, the fate of the poor people in the world, that if we really care about the poor, we need to care about climate change. And I think that changed a lot of the dynamics of this issue um, and, not, and far beyond Catholics, that it really affected uh, the way people think about it and, and also the politics. And then the fifth thing is that the big players are actually on board this time in a different way, I think. We've seen all kinds of bilateral handshaking agreements and, and joint announcements between the big countries, the U.S., China, India, um, South Africa, Brazil. Um, and then we've had Germany and France and so on doing also uh, meetings with those countries. And we hear very sort of good-sounding noises that they have worked out some of the issues that are lie at the core of this list that I talked about before and what needs to be agreed in Paris. So I think those are good things. Um, I think the leadership in the UN this time is good, um, is better than we had last time around. Uh, I don't want to, whatever. I think uh, we have good uh, presidency and the French um, leadership uh, in their diplomatic corps and in the, the presidency and uh, Francois Hollande is, uh, I've been really dedicated to making this uh, legacy issue um, as France hosts the talks. The uh, president, uh, I'm sorry, the secretary of the uh, UN Framework Convention, Cristiana Figueres uh, from Costa Rica, is a dynamo, and has really made this her life work. And uh, again, I think um, we have these tailwinds. We have goodwill. I think working around the world. So I'm optimist, cautiously optimistic. Well, I'm glad that we can end our discussion on a cautiously optimistic note because it is a difficult situation. I want to thank you for joining me today, Timmons, and we look forward to hearing what you and your students have to say on uh, climatedevlab.org. Yeah, I hope that we can um, stay uh, um, connected, and, and there's really a lot of work to be done, and I really appreciate the time, Fred. You can learn more about Timmons Roberts and his other work on climate change and development on our website's Planet Policy blog at brookings.edu slash planetpolicy. And also tune in to upcoming episodes of the Brookings Cafeteria to hear more from our experts on the climate talks in Paris. And now, my conversation with senior fellow Audrey Singer on the new National Academy's report on immigrants and immigration. Audrey was a member of the panel of experts who produced the report, and she was a guest on the podcast back in 2013. I encourage you to go back and listen to that one for her insights on the historical context of immigration and where immigrants live. So we're talking today about the report titled The Integration of Immigrants into American Society. It's by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine. Can you please explain what this organization is and describe your role in this report? There are actually two reports. Um, the one that just came out on immigrant integration, the one that I was a panelist for, and one will be coming out in the next couple of months on the fiscal and economic impact of immigrants and immigration. The NAS has been around for a very long time. In fact, it was an act of Congress during Lincoln's term that the the National Academy of Sciences was established. And today it's a private nonprofit organization uh, doing objective, independent, science-based research on a number of different areas uh, across the board, physical and social sciences. And this report um, came about because uh, it was last in 1997 that the NAS looked at immigration and put out a report on the fiscal and economic impacts of immigrants. Those findings have been around for a very long time. 
and are very out of date because they relied on data from the 1990s primarily and, and prior to that. So can you give me maybe top-line findings from the report? Immigrants and their children are integrating at essentially the same rate as their ancestors did, as our ancestors did. And this is an important uh, point of the whole project that um, integration, we looked at integration as something that happens to individuals over their lifetime and also that happens to groups of people over generations. And so we tried to, to assemble as much evidence as we could on both of those things across a range of issues. What about this question of uh, immigrants learning English or not? So the majority of immigrants who come here are not speaking English as their native language. And today, about 85% of the foreign-born population in the United States speaks a language other than English at home. And by far, Spanish is the most prevalent language. An another measure of English language integration is how well people speak English. So the data we use, you know, there's evidence that shows that um, language acquisition is happening as quickly as it did in the past with earlier waves of, of immigrants from Europe. And um, that by the second generation, most people are speaking English well and losing the language of their parents and their grandparents. So, and again, this is happening uh, on pace with what we have seen historically. And by the third generation, most people only speak English in this country. Can you speak maybe to the, the this issue that we hear about, that immigrants are more likely to be involved in the criminal justice system? What's very clear from the research um, out there is that increased prevalence of immigrants in the U.S. is associated with lower crime rates. And that is the opposite of what we generally think. Among men ages 18 to 39, the, the immigrant population are incarcerated at a rate that is one-fourth the rate for the native-born population. And cities and neighborhoods and areas with greater concentrations of immigrants generally have lower rates of crime and violence compared to other neighborhoods. So there are some really interesting um, effects there. But we've, uh, we also found in the research that uh, over time, the rates of of crime among the next generation of immigrants become more like the native-born as that time progresses. Let me ask you this final question. Uh, what impact do you think this report will have, or what impact do you hope it will have on the current debate about immigration policy? Okay. So the first one that may surprise some people is that immigration has changed our race and ethnic composition, and it's changed it through intermarriage in a big way. And um, one out of every seven marriages in the U.S. now crosses major uh, race or ethnic boundaries. Um, and this leads to uh, children who are of mixed backgrounds. And it's in a recent survey um, that the committee looked at, more than a third of all Americans reported having a close family member who was of a different racial or ethnic background. And I think that's an important thing that kind of looks to the future, but also makes us understand ourselves a little bit better now. Um, so we've seen a lot of good press. We've seen a lot of people using it to make arguments. 
um, looking ahead. What I worry about is that um, immigration is often a fact-free zone and that we've collected the evidence, we've shared the evidence, and we have to remember what that says in order to um, to be able to understand the changes that are happening all around us. So um, my hope is that people turn to this 400-plus page tome over and over again. I know that's not a reality, but I do think some of the most salient points that are made in this report really speak to the policy issues of the day. Well, thank you, Aja, for your time today. You're welcome, Fred. Thanks. To learn more about this report, The Integration of Immigrants into American Society, visit nap.edu. That's the National Academies Press. And that's it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Chris Anichi, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahin, and our intern, Karen Welgergis. Editing help this week from Mark Holscher. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Happy birthday, Mom. Until next time, I'm Fred Dukes.